Genesis 47, I'm going to take you to another scene that's farther into the story. And I need to read quite a few verses for our text. And I'll, then I'll back up a little bit and I'll come to it. But I want you to look at Genesis 47 and verse number 13. And there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. When money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in thy presence? For the money faileth. And Joseph said, Give your cattle, and I will give you for your cattle if money fail. And they brought their cattle unto Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and for the flocks and for the cattle of the herds and for the asses, and he fed them with bread for all their cattle for that year. When that year was ended, they came unto him the second year and said unto him, We will not hide it from my Lord how that our money is spent. My Lord also hath our herds of cattle. There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Wherefore shall we die before thine eyes, both we and our land? By us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants unto Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land be not desolate. And Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. Well, the Egyptians sold every man his field because the famine prevailed over them, so the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities from one end of the border of Egypt, even to the other end thereof. I'll not deal with verse 22 tonight, so verse 23 then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have brought you this day in your land for Pharaoh. Lo, here is seed for you, and ye shall sow the land. It shall come to pass in the increase that ye shall give the fifth part, 20% unto Pharaoh, and four parts shall be your own for seed of the field and for your food and for them of your households and for food for your little ones. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants and Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth part except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen. They had possessions therein and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Last night we saw how that God orchestrated the circumstances to force the issue of past sin with Joseph's brothers. And we stopped at the point of Judah confessing that God had found out their iniquity and he was willing to sacrifice his own life before he would repeat the, the sins of 20 years prior. He was given the chance to abandon Benjamin to a life of slavery, which is exactly what he had done to Joseph, but he refused to live life any longer in the lies and the self-preservation that had driven him for most of his adult life. It is then in chapter 45, the very next chapter, that Joseph reveals himself there's a very tearful but a joyful reunion. And of course, they were fearful at the first that, that might Joseph want to exact revenge. He certainly had the power to do so. But they found that Joseph was gracious and, and forgiving. He assured them that, that you are safe in, in my hands. 
And then in chapter 45, very quickly, the attention turns to the old father that is still living in Hebron. And Joseph instructing his brothers to go home and bring your entire family back to Egypt and you're going to settle down in the land in Goshen that I, I will give to you. And in all of that, there are the strains of the gospel. We see the grace of God and that he brings us to a place of repentance. He is forgiving. He has reconciled us to himself. And what is so beautiful about it is that it is the one who was offended that initiated the reconciliation. It is Joseph who sets everything up when his brothers had no hope of reconciling. He loved them before they loved him. He um, knew them before they knew him. He reached out to them before they reached out to him. And it reminds us that the Godhead has initiated the process of salvation and, uh, uh, and that while you were at sinners, Christ died for us. So the strains of the gospel are there. Now, now most of that chapter is, is taken up with Joseph giving instructions to his brothers for the future. Everything has been laid bare. Everything is out in the open and, and Joseph has, has spared their life and, and they are for the very first time, for the very first time, they are living in family harmony, but, but what, what do we do now? And so Joseph instructs them about moving to Goshen and getting Jacob to leave his homeland and, and coming to this land and I want you just to back up to chapter 45 and I want to just show one verse in the whole narrative because I, I think it's very instructive. And in all of those instructions that Joseph is giving to his brothers, I want you just to look at chapter 45 and verse 20. He says, also regard not your stuff for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours. And I, I love that statement because Jacob, Joseph knew that it's a huge deal to move all of those people from all of that way, and, and, and there probably would be some thought as to how are we going to pull this off? So Joseph says, don't even pack. Just leave everything behind. Go get your father and your family and just come and, and don't waste time packing all of your belongings because you just get here and I will provide everything that you need in this new life. And it's a picture of leaving behind all of the baggage of the old life when you come to Christ. Because sometimes people want to bring old cares and, and old habits and, and old baggage along. But she quoted the verse, Behold, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And, and I know that Joseph is telling them to leave the physical belongings back, but, but leave the emotional baggage behind as well and start afresh in Goshen. And, and you can't come into this new relationship with old fears and lingering guilts and, and self-condemnation. So, so leave all of that stuff behind and, and enter in this new relationship with me without all of that baggage. So all the arrangements have been made. There, there's been this glorious reconciliation and every ugly thing that you've read in the story so far, that's all been buried in the past. And Jacob's going to come with his family. He's going to settle down in Goshen and Joseph is going to be in his exalted position and he's taking care of his father and the brothers are, they're going to raise their families there and, 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 and all of the years of hatred and bitterness, boy, that, that is all behind them except for one thing. Somebody has to go tell Jacob the truth. 
Because in verse number 26, when they come to him and they say, Joseph is yet alive. Just think of what that one statement implies. They're not going to be able to say that without also saying, and we lied. So, so though it is not stated, there, there's going to have to be a confession somewhere. They've got to make things right with Jacob just like they have with Joseph. And it's going to be very difficult to persuade Jacob to leave Canaan and to go to Egypt because the history of his family has always been that whenever they left Canaan and went to Egypt, it was trouble that followed. You might remember that his grandfather Abraham had moved to Egypt to escape a famine. It was just trouble when he did. And you might remember that his father Isaac had left the land of Canaan to escape his brother and it was just trouble when he did. Jacob himself had left the land of Canaan to escape his brother, and that brought him trouble. Everything about Abraham's family said, don't leave Canaan and don't go to Egypt. If there's a famine, if you need a wife, if you're running from a brother, don't go there. So, so Joseph knew that his father is going to have to have some persuasion in order to move. And the clearest sign that there could possibly be would be if he heard about the resurrection of Joseph from the dead. If Jacob heard that his long lost son, who he has believed is dead for 22 years, is now alive, well, what could be more wonderful news than that? But in order to persuade his father that he was alive, he has to persuade the brothers to tell them that he's alive. And in order to do that, they have to tell him that they're the ones who killed him in the first place. And we're reminded, and I'm not preaching on this tonight, but we're reminded of how that reconciliation rests upon honesty. There's no meaningful relationship without transparency and truth. There can't be any duplicity or, or any dishonesty. And, and the honest report means giving an honest report about yourself. So Joseph says, go tell him the wonderful news about me, knowing it means you're going to tell him the horrible news about you. But if you're not willing to do that, then all of this is not, what are you going to do? Are you going to go back to Canaan and in the next five years die in a famine because you won't tell the truth? You are facing nothing but death if you don't give an honest report. So these brothers come back to their father. They begin to tell him the truth for the first time in 22 years. And the news is going to be overwhelming emotionally for him. It is going to hit him like a ton of bricks. There is no way that he can prepare himself for what he is about to hear. For one thing, he doesn't trust his sons. He knows that they are liars. So, so why would he believe anything that they're going to tell him now? They have no credibility with him. He has spent the last 22 years in, in disbelief and maybe disappointment at God. And, and surely he has a bitter and a hard spirit even against God. And I think the, of the enormity of the news that they're getting ready to break to him. But I think of the beauty of the news they're getting ready to break to him. They, they come riding up, wagons loaded with grain. They, they pulled up to the front porch. I see the old man sitting on his rocking chair, dust swirling in the front yard. The boys spill out of the wagons. They, they make their way, uh, way up to the, to the front porch. They begin the dialogue. They tell him everything that has happened. And one of the brothers says, Dad, we, we've got to tell you something. And, and I don't know how to break this to you. But I'm just going to tell you. Joseph is living. Huh? Now, 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 to believe for him... 
To believe that Joseph is alive is to believe that Joseph has come back from the dead. You, you may remember that, that Abraham, when he offered Isaac on the altar, Hebrews 11 says that he was accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Abraham believed that God would raise his son from the dead. Jacob had no such hope. And do you know how, how many times he, he told himself that Joseph was dead and how many times he played that scene over in his mind over and over and over and it took his breath away to hear that Joseph is yet alive? Can I tell you that you and I have a message that we can take to this world and here's the message that we can take to this world is that Jesus Christ died for your sins, but I don't serve a dead Savior. I serve a living Savior. He arose from the grave. He is living, living. He's trying to catch his breath. He's stunned. Tears begin to fall on his cheeks and another brother says, but wait a minute, Dad. That's not all. It's not just that Joseph is living, but, but Joseph is Lord. You see, see the Bible says that that he is governor over all the land of Egypt. He's not only raised from the dead, but he is raised in power and glory. And dad, you're going to see Joseph like you have never seen him before. He's not just alive, but he is the Lord over all of Egypt. What a message to take to this world that Jesus Christ has raised from the dead, that he's been given a name which is above every name. Every knee is going to bow before him. He's alive and he's the Lord. Another brother speaks up and he said, Dad, Dad, Dad if I could just add to it though, um, he's living, he's Lord. Jacob loves us, he's not angry. He's not bitter. He's not out for revenge. He could have gotten into revenge, but all that he wanted was reconciliation. After all that we did to him, he was full of grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's the message that we have. Hey, he's living. He's Lord. He loves us. And hey, Dad, he longs for us. He wants us to come live with him. In fact, he has already prepared a place for us. He told us to come back and live with him. He, he longs for us to be with him. What a tremendous message. What a gospel to take to the world. What great news. We get to Genesis 46. It is moving day for Jacob. Jacob, his son, all the family, 70 in number. They load the wagons. They're headed for Goshen. There's so much in the chapter I'd love to preach. I'm, I'm not for sake of time. I'm I'm just going to leave it so I can get to chapter 47. I, I will just say that there is a big deal made out of Ford chapter 46 of them moving to the land of Goshen. In fact, it's too big of a deal to ignore it. And the reason why is because though they will be in Egypt, they're not to become part of Egypt. They don't move to the cultural centers and intermingle with the Egyptians. They are going to be in Egypt, but you are not of Egypt, in the world, not of the world. And then we get to chapter 47. I'm hurrying. The family, the family is settled down in Goshen. This is going to be their home for the next 400 years. And we know from the book of Exodus that another Pharaoh is going to rise up and he'll not treat the Hebrews as kindly as this Pharaoh has done. And we know that they will become a nation of slaves in this land and even that is a part of the providence of God. But what chapter 47 deals with is the severity of the famine and how the Egyptians handled it, what they had to do to survive the famine. See, all of this time, there are several more years of this seven-year famine to go, and, and, and each year makes the situation even more dire. 
And the story of Jacob and Joseph takes a back seat. And now we have this long historical section that Moses puts in here. And it's historical and it's interesting, but what does it have to do with Joseph? What does it have to do with Jacob? What does it have to do with these 12 sons? The Egyptians, they come to Joseph to buy bread. He, he, he sells bread to them. They, they sell their cattle, then they sell their land, and, and eventually they sell themselves into servitude. And, and, and it's historical, it's interesting, and it's dire, and, and it impresses upon you this is a really bad famine. But there's something about it that stands out to me as I read this, that the emphasis is on how the famine affected the Egyptians, but it did not affect the Hebrews in the same way. Amen. Now, no doubt they did not escape the famine. Right. The famine hit Goshen like it did everywhere else. So they experienced the same famine, but they did not resort to the same survival tactics as the Egyptians. In fact, verse number 26 or verse 27 tells you that they grew, they had possessions, and they multiplied exceedingly, get this, in the famine. And there's a very stark contrast between the Egyptians who are selling their possessions and they're selling themselves into servitude just to be able to survive. And one verse that tells you, oh, by the way, the Hebrews prospered at the same time. Now, that doesn't bring us to a health and wealth mindset which says that, that if you serve God, then God will make you prosper and he'll multiply you uh, and, and you'll be rich and richer than your neighbor. That, that's not true. And some people think that prosperity and spirituality go hand in hand. And some people think that, that you've got to be poor in order to be spiritual. Now, neither one of those is true. I know a lot of poor Christian folks. And I know a lot of rich heathen as well. So, so, so please understand, it's not health and wealth. But, but God takes care of his children. And I want you to know that God can make you to prosper and God can make you to flourish even in the middle of a famine. The troubles of this world should not affect you and I like it does everybody else. When the world is in turmoil, the Christian should be at peace. When your neighbor has to be on tranquilizers and has a psychiatrist on speed dial, you have a song in your heart because you got Jesus on your mind. When the famine comes, it comes to everybody. Bad people get the coronavirus, good people get it too. Joe Biden is not the president of just Democrats. I'm sorry to say, he's your president too. If the country goes into a recession, if it goes into a depression, your little corner of the world is going to experience that. But the thing about Christianity is that it does not require ideal conditions to thrive. Christianity grows in bad conditions even better than it does in good conditions. And a famine of any kind is good ground to grow a strong faith. And what I find so interesting is that the family of Jacob, they are not affected by the same way as the Egyptians. Amen. When God sends the plagues, later on in the book of Exodus, when he sends the plagues um, into, the, into the land of Egypt, the Hebrews are going to escape that. Flies in Egypt, no flies in Goshen. However, not so with the famine. If all of the land had been barren and dry, but crops were growing in Goshen, then all of the Egyptians would have come down there and would have taken those crops. No, they're going through the same famine, but the focus for them is not on the famine. The focus is fruitfulness. 
And I have honestly tried to keep that in my mind as I come out of 2020 and I come in to 2021. 2020 will always be the year that we look back on and say, boy, what a year of trials, and it was. But I've tried so hard in my mind not to become obsessed with a virus or an election or whatever it might be. And we think that 2021 is going to get us out of that, but, but it may not. I've greatly desired, though, that my mind and my emotions and my spirit not be all about the famine, but in being surrendered to God and devoted to Christ no matter what comes by. If your focus could be on what God is doing, if your focus could be on, on God is still the same, you can go through the same trouble as the rest of the world, but be fruitful in your spirit during the famine. That, that's the message. So, so very quickly, let me, let me just break it down. I want you to notice, first of all, a severe famine. Look at verse 13. There was no bread in the land, for the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. The famine was very sore, no bread, the people fainted. Three descriptors that are meant to impress upon you the severity of the situation. Now, I have never experienced any kind of famine. I have never known a day of my life that I did not eat if I wanted to. I may not have had anything I liked or anything that I was in the mood for, but you and I have always had plenty of food. So, so when I read that, I can't place myself in that situation. Amen. I can't imagine what it is to be starving, watch your family starving, and there is no bread. When you have sustained all of your resources and you are helpless, you are helpless against the onslaught of years of no rain and no crops. So here's what the Egyptians do. They turn to the government to save them. Yeah. Now, in this case, I don't think that's necessarily bad. Because Joseph has been preparing the nation for what, what was coming. Back in chapter 41, he'd been placed in agriculture and, and organizing and administrating a policy to, to get ready for this. So it is reasonable in this case, in this case, that the people come to Joseph for relief in the middle of this famine. So they, so they, come, they come to Joseph and, and they negotiate a deal. We will sell all of our livestock to Pharaoh in exchange for grain. Now, that may sound like that he's taking advantage of them, but I actually think that he is doing them a favor because if they keep the cattle, the cattle are going to die anyway. Nobody can sustain livestock in seven years of a drought, so why not exchange them for grain so that you don't starve to death? Well, another year passes, the grain is expended, and so they come back this time and they exchange all of their land for grain. So, so the government takes possession of all of the farmland in Egypt. And the arrangement is that the government would own the land, you farm the land, you keep 80% of whatever you raise, 20% goes back to the government. In the Middle Age, it would be a feudal system. In the South, it would have been sharecroppers back in the day. And it's not a bad deal if you don't mind government to control most of what you own. Now, I, I'm not going to deal with the ethics or the morality or the capitalism and the socialism and all of this. And there's a whole set of arguments that you can read over whether Joseph was taking advantage of them or whether he was fair and equitable. I, I would just, I'll just give you a couple of points. One, the arrangement is the people's idea. They came up with the idea, not Joseph. The money that they give doesn't go to Joseph. He doesn't make any money off of this. It goes to Pharaoh. It's their idea. The money goes to, to, to them. If you look at it in a form of taxation, their taxes amounted to 20%. 
I'll be honest with you, if you told me 20% flat tax, including income tax, sales tax, a whole nine yards, I'd probably take the deal. All right. So, so, so if you look at it in taxation, not, not a bad deal. Two, in verse 25, they thank Joseph for saving their life. So they don't feel advantage. They feel like they've been taken advantage of. And while it's not free market capitalism, it's not communism. Because they're not forced to sell their livestock and lands. The government doesn't come in and confiscate anything. They didn't come to the government looking for a handout. They're looking to survive. It's not taking land from wealthy farmers to give to poor farmers. It's not wealth distribution. And so, so I, I think that it is a fair thing. And with the limited knowledge that we have, Joseph is fair, and, and he's able to help put people out in dire need. So there is a severe famine. But then I want you to notice, secondly, there is a settled family. Look at verse 27. Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen. And they had possessions therein and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And I don't know if Moses meant this as a contrast, but you can't miss the contrast between what you've just read about the Egyptians and what's happening to the Hebrews at the same time. As the famine wore on and as the Egyptians suffered, the family of Jacob, they settled down in Goshen and they, they began their new life. And, 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 and though, though, though the famine affected the land, there's no emphasis of a famine in their life. If you'll notice in verse 27, the word Israel, and if you'll notice how it moves from singular to plural in the same verse, and I know that Jacob's name has been changed to Israel. Israel will also become the name of the nation. And I believe that this is the first time in your Bible that the word Israel is used for the nation. And the verse, the verse is telling us that the family of a father and 12 sons was becoming that mighty nation in the famine. And again, there's no reason to believe that the famine did not hit Goshen. If Goshen had flourished and everything else had languished, then they would have been overran by everybody else. But, but the family moves in the middle of a famine and, and they have as many years of drought and barrenness as anybody else. But the emphasis, the emphasis with the family is not famine. It is flourishing. They settled down. They, they raised their kids. They worshiped God. They took care of one another and God prospered them. And what a modern gospel wants to do is to tell you is that God will keep you out of the famines of life. If you listen to Kenneth Copeland or TBN or the like, they would tell you that God's people don't get sick and God's people don't have financial trouble and God's people can command well. I want to tell you something. God never exempted you from the famine. He never exempted you and I from the common troubles of a cursed world. But the emphasis of our life should not be the famine. The emphasis of our life ought to be the blessings of God even in the midst of a famine. This world, this world has plenty of reasons to wring its hands and worry about life and the future, but not so for the believer. We have the promises of God before us. We have a God that can take care of us. We have peace in our heart. We have an inheritance in heaven that cannot be taken away. I have a hope that transcends tomorrow or a virus or a looming economy or anything else. And sometimes we sing it without believing it, but I really believe that I don't know who hold, what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. It says, it says that they grew and multiplied exceedingly. If you were a young couple just starting your family out in that famine, you might would have reservations about bringing children into that world. 
If you watched enough news, you, you might think that maybe we should wait. Maybe this is not a good time. Maybe with all the uncertainty, we, we should perhaps hold out and see how this world turns. I think that is very bad counsel. Because the command is to be fruitful and multiply. If you wait for the right time, there never will be a right time. They grew, listen, they grew numerically in the famine. Can I bring it home? I really think that it's time for the church to get over the pity party of last year. And it's time for the church to rise up and build, to be aggressive in reaching out and, and let the church grow and expand and start new ministries and, and take on more missionaries, even in troublesome times. It is sad. It is sad for me to hear about churches that are struggling through all of this corona mess and trying to figure it out. And some states have corrupt governments and trying to shut them down. We, we don't have that in Florida. Thank God for that. And there's so many churches that are down in attendance and they're down in visitors and they're down in finances. It's just down, down, down. But did you know that the church has always thrived in the upheavals of history? Corrupt political systems and economic recessions and, and, and health crises and while the world may be famishing the church ought to be flourishing I really believe that 2021 ought to be the greatest year that your, your church has ever experienced severe famine severe famine you may experience that this year settled family but I want you to notice in verse 28 there's strong faith look at verse 28 Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years so the whole age of Jacob was 147 years. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, pray I put thee thy hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. But I will lie with my fathers and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Three times in this story that Jacob thinks he's dying. Three times. This is the first time. He's got another 17 years to live. So, so, so Jacob thinks he's dying. He thinks he's getting close to it. Once he moves to Goshen, he enjoys 17 years of watching his family and his grandkids play. But then he calls Joseph. He says, I, I, I fear the end is nearing. And he said, I've got a request for you. I want you to promise me that when I die, that you do not bury me in Egypt. A strange request. I'm grateful for the help in Egypt, but Egypt is not my home. I want you to promise me that you boys will carry me back to the burying place, the family cemetery in Machpelah in Cana, and bury me there. Now, it's a strange request, but it's more than just an old man saying, take me back home and bury me. Because Jacob knew that God had told Abraham that his people would be 430 years in a strange land, but God would deliver them out. And Jacob had a, he had a long view of things. And he knew that somehow that hundreds of years that his family, which would be a mighty nation then, would somehow, he didn't know how, it somehow would go back to Canaan, back to the land that God had promised them. And he did not want to be left behind in Egypt. He said, you take me home and you bury me there because God has promised the land to us and one day all of my descendants are gonna be back in that land and I don't wanna miss out on the blessing. 
You, you and I know that the blessed hope for the church is for Jesus to come back and to take us to heaven. That, that's our blessed hope. The blessed hope of the Jewish nation was not heaven. It was an earthly kingdom. For God to give them that earthly possession and to build a great nation, that was the blessed hope of Jacob. It was not heaven. It was Canaan. And the statement that he makes shows that he has a very strong faith. He believed in those promises now just as strongly as he had had at the beginning. He understood that there was more to life than what the eye could see. There was a promise for him to hold on to. I don't know if Jacob knew anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he did know that a better day was coming. He believed God's promises that the children of Israel would eventually become a nation and that in them through the nations, that, that all the nations would be blessed through the Messiah. And it is his faith, it is his faith that lies behind this dying declaration. He knew that his future was as bright as the promises of God. He knew that his death did not mean the death of God's promises. He knew that God's plan would be fulfilled not just in his generation, but in generations to come. He believed that one day, contrary to all of the evidence, that the world would be a different place and he wanted his burial to be a testimony to his faith in God's promises. Strong faith. I, um, I listen to a lot of preaching when I'm walking and driving, that's what all, I, I don't listen to podcasts or books. I listen to a lot of preaching. I would drive home tonight and I download a lot of preaching to my iPhone and I, I, I will listen to five or six sermons tonight on my way home. That's, that's what will keep me awake. And I'm often looking for, um, for new preachers to listen to. I, I'm looking for somebody that feeds me and everybody's fed differently by different men. And so I'm always on the hunt for somebody I haven't heard. And I'll find somebody and I'll download three or four or five sermons of his and I'll do that with three or four guys and then I'll, I'll listen to them if they have something to say. I'll, then I'll, I'll listen to them quite a bit. If they don't, I, I, I move on. And before I came on this trip, I, I downloaded some new guys that I'd, I'd heard the name. I'd never heard them preach. And so I downloaded them on my iPhone and I was going to try them out on my, on my trip up here just, just to see it. And they were so depressing. So depressing. And here's why. I'm just a little worn out hearing about how bad it is. Please don't tell me anymore how bad the virus is. And, and, and please don't tell me how evil the Democrats are. And please don't tell me how they're going to take all my liberties away and how bad the economy is and all the churches are going to shut down. Somebody please tell me God's still on the throne. So, some, somebody please tell me that, I, that God still has a purpose for my life that I can still have an abundant ministry, that, that there's still victory in Jesus, that my children can still serve God, that I don't have to just hold on and wait till the end. You, you may go through a famine, but God can make you flourish. And you can spend all of your energy on the things you don't know, politics and economy and virus. Or you could spend all of your energy on the things you do know, God, Jesus, the Bible. Why don't you just do that? And, and 2021 may be the deepest famine you've ever been through, but it can also be the most fruitful year that you've ever had. Right. It ought to be for you, it ought to be for your family, for your faith, and for Bible Baptist Church. We're gonna rise up, and no matter what is thrown our way, right. this is the year. 
This is the year we're gonna start a new ministry. Take on a new missionary. Win somebody to Jesus. See this church grow. Flourish even in the emphasis. The emphasis of your life cannot be on the famine. It has to be on the flourishing.